presentation. Thank you. First of all, thank you for the invitation. It's, uh, it's very nice to be here. Um, as I mentioned, I want to introduce work on the organization of part-time workers by uh, Japanese unions. And uh, as probably most people know, these, these workers have long been excluded from union membership. So this has, a, has the potential to be a very meaningful development and uh, could sort of redefine the membership of the community firm. So non-regular workers traditionally seen as, as non-members or pseudo-members and this could suggest that there will be a real inclusion. Therefore, the, uh, the title. Um, I also came up with an alternative title, which is a bit more cheeky in many ways. Maybe the first one is cheeky as well, given the, the presence of you here. But um, part, we could speak about partnership for organization. And this, this refers to a debate we particularly see in UK industrial relations, where these are often seen as two competing strategies. So either unions would engage in partnership, in a, a productive, cooperative relationship, with management, or unions should be a much more active, critical voice and focus on organizing, getting the numbers, because once you have the numbers, when you have enough uh, union members, you're in a position to actually uh, get something done. And that has even formed reference to organizing for partnership. So the only way to have a meaningful partnership where management listens to you is by having the numbers. So um, thinking about that, the Japanese case is really something of partnership for organizing because, as I, as I will discuss, um, it has really been a shared project in many ways to include non-regular members within the unions. There is a strong management support and there are various sort of processes that management and unions engage with together in this process of organizing. So uh, a possibly somewhat cheeky ver uh, version of a title is Partnership for Organizing. Obviously, it's, it's a very different form of organizing. The one organizing in the UK context is rather aggressive, for, for lack of a better word. This obviously is a highly cooperative form of organizing. So a lot of uh, industrial relations scholars will, will take offense with my use of the term organizing here. So I'm very much aware of that. Um, uh, maybe uh, some further background. The presentation is based on a, a paper that I, I hope to submit uh, within a few weeks or so. It's currently with an industrial relations colleague who sort of looks at some of the loose ends. Uh, if nothing else, the nothing else, the current draft is 14,000 words, so obviously I need to work on that <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but it's actually been a topic I've been working on for, um, for several years. Um, I did interviews in 2007. The results are very much... Uh, in that book, and that research also involved a few interviews with union representatives and some discussion about how to handle non-regular workers. I sort of left that, and the, the book very much focuses on, on, on what firms are doing, but I picked it up a few years later. Uh, I even tried to make it into a paper, um, which was... Uh, when I tried to submit it for publication, it was, I would say, rather well-received, except that it was based on a single company case study. So it had positive response, except for the fact that it was, there were questions about the representativeness. So what I've done in 2014 when I went back is try to have some more interviews. As it turns out, all the, all the unions are doing exactly the same, so it was extremely representative, but now I can at least back that up uh, to some extent. So um, that is sort of a little bit of uh, background. The, maybe one final point. What has been challenging about the research is how to interpret the findings. How meaningful are these changes? As always, it's really between, we find ourselves between institutional change and institutional continuity. But the trick in this case in particular is where we are in that 
continuum between change and continuity. I think I started out by considering this more revolutionary than I would consider it now, but that might be something we can discuss um, towards the end of the presentation uh, or during the Q&A. Okay. Um, I realize it's very much a, a story of three parts. I want to say, give a little bit of background. Uh, I, I assume that some people uh, know an awful lot uh, about Japanese industrial relations. Others might know a little bit less. So I just want to pick up some core aspects of Japanese industrial relations and Japanese unions that sort of um, help us to interpret these developing, uh, these developments. Then secondly, I want to say something about my study and, and the findings, so that a short reference to, to, to uh, the data collection. And then I want to focus in particular on uh, a single uh, industrial union, UA Zenzen, which has by far been most successful in at least getting the numbers. So um, around 80% of all non-regular workers who are being organized are organized through unions belonging to uh, the industrial union UA Sensen. And then I want to discuss three particular case studies, three enterprise unions belonging to UA Sensen and how they have engaged with this, this organization. As I said, then it's the, so far so good, I think, in many ways, but then it's the tricky part. Um, how do we assess these developments? Uh, I think there's a strong argument that the unions have become more inclusive by including these workers. Uh, at the same time, there's a, a, a real representative challenge because unions are now supposed to represent two very different groups of workers. Um, I, indeed, I want to come back to whether this is a redefinition of the community firm and maybe some further implications uh, uh, of, of the findings for, for what's happening now and what is likely to happen uh, in the future. I'll, uh, I'll put all points up at the same time. Uh, this is just a little bit of background on trade unions and non-regular uh, employment across across countries. Um, this is sort of it's a, it's a very basic version of the argument, and each of these points could be discussed in in, in elaborate detail. But um, there's clearly this this view uh, across countries that the standard employment relationship is disappearing. Whether that is always really the case, if you look at the data, is one of those topics that can be debated. But it's strong awareness that there is, seems to be a strong rise in, in more precarious temporary forms of employment. And real concerns about this employment, as it's being highly precarious, uh, tends to be characterized by low pay, limited professions, provisions like, like, like pension provisions, and very limited career opportunities. Often very little skill development that would allow these employees to then move on in, uh, to, to higher levels of organizations. Um, what are unions doing about these workers? Obviously you would say, okay, if there's any group of workers that is in need union representation, it might be these, uh, but unions have long neglected the employment types and, and have achieved little advancement, advancement in organizing them. And there are, there's actually several, several, um, many people who are willing to, to blame unions as a, as a source of the problems, in the sense that they protect this, this small group of insiders who are well organized and have the nice wages, etc., and the good pensions, and subsequently force all those uh, 
uh, all, all various outsiders like the unemployed or like younger workers into these precarious forms of employment. And some people, there, there's some real venom in some of the discussions about the union uh, strategies in this respect. Um, I would argue unions have become engaged in the organizations of non-regular workers. Uh, but success has been limited. We have to admit that. Um, to some extent, it is about an ambiguous attitude because engaging with precarious work can easily become a legitimization of that work, a sort of acceptance of those working conditions, and um, further uh, rise of these types of employment can lead to a decline in overall working conditions. I would say more fundamental are probably all kinds of structural challenges that make organization difficult. So we, for example, see that a lot of in, in industries with a lot of precarious workers, unions are often very badly represented. So they're simply not there to organize the workers. There are also all kinds of problems with a very fragmented workforce. Workers that work a few days here and a few days there, etc., are very difficult to organize, of course. So there are actually, I would say, those structural challenges are much more important. Um, as mentioned, this entire debate could be easily be a presentation in itself. Um, I would like to leave that and, and move to uh, the situation in Japan. Um, I think a lot of this information is, is, is well known, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short. So Japanese unions are enterprise unions. Not, not always the case, but about 95% of all unions are indeed enterprise unions. And these enterprise unions, and I, I suppose most people will know this, are sort of one of the three main pillars, together with lifetime employment, together with seniority wages. They were, let's put it this way, they were seen as one of the, the, the three pillars. Um, uh, an important point, and actually something I only fully realized a few years ago when I was sort of had a look at this, is that actually very few firms have an enterprise union. Less than 10% of all firms have an enterprise union. And there is a difference between large firms and small firms, and again, that makes sense, but the extent of the difference is, 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 is enormous in many ways. So, so about 75% of firms with more than 1,000 employees have an enterprise union, versus only 1% of the very small firms. So, um, and obviously these enterprise unions are affiliated with industrial federations, national federations, like Rengo and Zendroren. Um, the structure sort of informs a very specific uh, identity. So uh, membership traditionally just for regular workers. They are perceived to be the members of the enterprise community. Non-regular workers are much more seen as a buffer, have a temporary presence within the organization, but are not part of the firm community. As members of the firm community, unions are very cooperative, strong cooperation uh, with management. Again, to, to, get, to work together to, to make sure that the, the organization, the firm, will, will survive and, and probably will profit. Um, then there are so-called union shop and check-off contracts. A union shop uh, contract pretty much means that uh, when you work, you're supposed to join the union. When you're employed, you're supposed to enjoy the union. There are a few nuances in that, in that process, but pretty much boils down to that. Check-off contracts means that pretty much uh, the employer sort of takes out the union fee before your actually salary is, is, is paid. So it means that being a member of a union is a very automatic process, at least uh, as long as you qualify being a regular regular worker as such. So the fact that a certain enterprise union might organize 70% of the employees is not necessarily an indication that the workers are incredibly supportive of their union. It is a rather natural uh, process as such. 
see what is next. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit. This is where it gets interesting. Uh, so far, it was really uh, rather basic, but um, a consequence is clearly that workers at small and medium-sized enterprises and non-regular workers are very badly served by enterprise unions. And this explains a lot of criticism against uh, at least the mainstream unions as, as organized by, by Rengel. Uh, they re- are seen to represent male workers at large firms. And, and you can interview people at Rengo and they will acknowledge this. They will say, yes, we are seen as uh, representing male workers at large firms. And, and it has, in, uh, it has um, inspired a lot of criticism against these unions. So they have been considered unable or unwilling to organize non-regular workers, broadband. Uh, Urano and Stewart, uh, they described Rango as unlikely vehicles for alternative strategies because of their exclusionary ideology bound by the perpetuation of the cultural milieu of the, secured, of the secure workforce. Um, unions are in accordance with this this, this criticism we also see in the general literature. It's a part responsible, part prisoner of the existing employment pr- framework, and also supportive of its gender uh, compromise. So who has mostly been involved in the organization of non-regular workers? These are the alternative unions, uh, like women-only unions, but in particular regional and or community uh, unions. So that is uh, an important uh, background in that respect. Um, yes. Um, interesting is that I think we obviously have seen a lot of change in Japanese employment practices. And especially if we look at the three pillars, you could say, okay, lifetime employment has maybe not changed so much, but it has been heavily discussed. And you could argue it's, it's sort of has changed in the sense that the number of workers that probably would still qualify lifetime employment has been reduced. Obviously, the case of seniority wages is much more far-reaching in the sense that there has been a strong introduction of performance later pay. Unions have, the issue on the unions, I think, has been rather quiet, Um, possibly simply because of a lack of interest, um, convinced that they are beyond relevance to some extent, possibly even. But Obviously, there has been a reduction in, in, in unionization rates, but still, in many ways, they have not been discussed much. But there are important challenges that the unions facing. This is the obvious one, the declining unionization rate. Um, you can see that uh, from a very high 55.8% unionization rate in the immediate post-war years, it has reduced to uh, 17.5%. This is the right column. Um, the story of union members is a little bit less drastic in the sense that the, the highest number was in '94, but again, we see a reduction uh, there as well. So these are obviously very, um, very, very negative de- developments in many ways from the perspective uh, of the union. Um, another um, uh, important challenge is the declining role of Shunto. The, um, the, na- the, the annual wage coordination that takes place in April. Uh, for many years, this made sure that a system of enterprise unions still had a, a, a national level of coordination and sort of formed a, a certain uh, centralization of collective bargaining in a system that is highly decentralized. Um, but it's pretty much acknowledged that that Shunto is no longer functioning as such 
Uh, the perspective between employees and employees is quite different in this respect. So Nippon Kedandran seems pretty, pretty pleased about this and sees it as a, as a, as a, very, a very good development and stressed the importance of negotiations at the wage level. Uh, of course, Rengo is much less pleased about this, but they also acknowledge that even though the framework is still there, they go through the motions, the actual uh, effect had almost completely disappeared uh, by the beginning of the 21st century. So another very important challenge to the unions. And then finally, so finally of course, and, and, and we mentioned this already, is this uh, strong rise in non-regular employment. So it's always easiest just to look at the numbers for regular employment, and we see from, what is it, 81 point something percent in 88 a decline to less than 65% in uh, 2012. In a system where only regular employees qualify as, tend to qualify as union members, this obviously has a huge impact on the unions and actually also explains why the unionization rate has declined quite substantially. Obviously, at least is a very uh, important uh, factor. So that is sort of the... The, the, the sketch of the background uh, in which we find ourselves um, and this is sort of the, the situation in which I want to position the research I have done uh, among unions organizing uh, non-regular workers. It's actually ongoing research and it's not just with unions belonging to Rengo but also unions belonging to uh, Zenroren, the communist union um, which they are not but they're sort of perceived to be that way. Um, for this, I solely focus on cases belonging to Rengo and its industrial union, USNZN. So, so I, I leave the Zenroren part of the story uh, out of this presentation. Um, interviews with representatives of all three levels of unionism. So this includes various departments at Rengo, which are directly responsible for either non-regular workers or for organizing. So this includes the Department of Organizational Affairs, Department of Non-Regular Employment, Department of Working Conditions. Um, as I said, then a particular focus on the Industrial Federation, UA Zenzen. Um, and uh, UA Zenzen only exists since 2012, I think, when it uh, came into existence through a merger uh, between UI Zenzen and GSD. Uh, so I also draw on some earlier interviewees, interviews with representatives of UI Zenzen, but very much focused on UA Zenzen. And then, as I said, three enterprise unions that belong to this particular industrial federation. Um, I've named them Retail Co. 1, 2, and 3, uh, because I will present some data on their personnel systems, so it, it seems better to anonymize, uh, anonymize the information. Uh, most of the interviews took place in 2014, but I said there were some earlier interviews as well. Um, what is happening in this respect? So what we see is that major supermarkets uh, like Ito Yokado or Eon have really become heavily dependent on part-time and other non-regular workers. So we are talking about 80% of their workers will now be uh, non-regular. And their unions, as I said, all affiliated with the Industrial Union U.S. Ensign, have come to organize these workers. Uh, even to the extent that they now, which is not surprising given the fact that 80% of the workers is non-regular, they now also have, become, have come to constitute the majority of the members of these enterprise unions. Um, 
a lot of people would say um, not too soon, that this development is not taking place too soon. A lot of people have obviously pointed out that there is a, unions needed to do something. They didn't have a choice. Uh, given the strong rise in non-regular employment and the other challenges that unions are facing, action uh, was needed. But it is striking that it has taken a very long time before unions really started to engage with this. And a few important elements are um, the decision by Rengo to, to, to set up specific action plans from the early 2000s, which sort of put, the, put this issue uh, on the agenda. And they also established several sort of um, departments in order to support the organization of non-regular workers and, and their better working conditions. Um, a particular, the, the last one I think is particularly interesting, the Department of Non-Regular Employment. I think um, this was set up in 2000, I don't know, 2007 or so, I think. But originally, the focus was very much on cooperation with NGOs. So it was very much inspired by the difficult position of a lot of precarious workers within uh, uh, Japan society. And therefore, there was an ambition to, 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 as a union to get in contact with these other kind of organizations which were fighting for a better position of these workers. It's interesting that from 2010, they would still do that, but the focus has become much more on actually getting... Uh, are organizing those workers. So the focus has sort of moved away from these, these coalitions with, with NGOs to actually moving to places where the union is present and trying to organize this worker. So I th- what they say, Shokunoba Kara Hajime Jo. So let's start from the workplace. So there has been an interesting sort of organizing element in that particular uh, aspect. Um, I realized when I made this slide is that it seems to suggest more than is actually happening. It seems that point one is strongly related to point two and point three in the sense that unions start to organize uh, non-regular workers and then point two and three, Rengo is supporting this. Given the character of Japanese unions and the dominance of enterprise and to a lesser extent industrial unions, I'm not sure whether Rengo plays such an important role in these actual organizing efforts. It seems more likely that it has been pushed from UIZENs and towards Rango as much as, as, as the other way around. So, so it's all happening at the same time, but causalities are not, not obvious or not necessarily uh, very uh, the way you would possibly expect them to be. Okay, what, what has been the outcome of these organizing activities? Um, I mean, in many ways, a strong rise in numbers. I think that the, the can I, actually, to what extent is my face? Should I move? Is it okay? Okay, okay. Um, um, I would say an important, an important one is the first uh, row. So we actually see the absolute number of non-regular union members in thousands. So from 260,000 in 2000 to, let's say, uh, almost. Uh, uh, to 970,000, 970, almost a million in 2014. So this is quite substantial. This is a, a fourfold in, increase in, in, in union membership. And I think you would have to struggle in this world to find anything like that. So in many ways, that is very impressive. What is also very interesting is the, is the um, penultimate role, which shows the number of part-timers or non-regular workers that are organized by UA Zenzen these days which is 744,000. So this is a strong indication that 
it is a process that is driven by U.S. Enzo. They are really responsible for 80% of the organized uh, part-timers. Um, to some extent, it is because U.S. Enzo is a, a retail union, so obviously there are a lot of part-timers and non-regular workers in retail. So to some extent, it is a supply issue, but clearly there are non-regular workers in other places as well. So clearly the U.S. Enzo, US Enzo is very active in that part. Uh, the final one, uh, 51.2, um, also shows that within U.S. Enzo, these workers are now the majority of, uh, of, of members. And you have to take into account, I suppose, that a lot of, still a lot of enterprise unions within U.S. Enzo might not be organizing part-time workers. So in the enterprise unions that actually organize these workers, this percentage will be much higher as such. So um, some, some important uh, data. So, um, maybe this is a good moment to say a few more words about U.S. Enzo, because I think it's fair to say that this success has been quite controversial um, in many ways. Um, U.S. Enzen is a slightly special, it's a special industrial federation in the sense that they have strong control over their enterprise unions, which is quite rare in Japan. So um, they, for example, if unions want to agree a wage uh, agreement with with their employer, if an enterprise union wants to agree a wage agreement, or if an enterprise union would consider a strike, they need permission from U.S. Enzen. So U.S. Enzen has a strong control in that sense, which is exceptionally rare among Japanese unions. I, I would say normally the enterprise union can pretty much do what it wants and um, just informs the industrial union. So there is a, a really, this is an important aspect that sets U.S. Enzen apart. Um, there's also said, it's also been very controversial in the sense that uh, a lot of people criticize U.S. Enzen as being very top-down, which is in accordance with this aspect. Also, as a union that just co coordinates with management, we'll discuss that in detail, uh, the extent of this development, and therefore doesn't necessarily speak on behalf of the workers, but is just in it for, for the numbers and for the organizing success, but rather than necessarily uh, meaningful representation. So, um, what I said, we'll... Uh, We'll get to that point at some, uh, later on. As I said, uh, my focus would be on the actual activities as, as taken by three enterprise unions belonging to U.S. Enzen. All these three enterprise unions are enterprise unions of large supermarkets, and they have started to uh, uh, both contract workers and part-timers uh, to include contract workers and part-timers in their unions. Um, it's probably here's a good point to sort of, I don't know w whether you got annoyed by this already, but I completely mix non-regular workers and part-time workers all the time. Um, that is mostly because both, uh, both contract workers and part-time workers tend to be organized. But in all honesty, the absolute, like somewhere in the 90% are part-time workers. So there is a real tendency to to sort of say part-time workers, even though it's not, it's not really correct. The problem is non-regular workers is not really correct either because it tends to be solely contract workers and part-time workers. Agency workers, for example, tend to be much less organized. So that, that's why there's a bit of confusion in the terminology. But almost all of them would be part-time workers. Um, most of these unions started with part-time workers and contract workers working more than 30 hours per week because it has to do with the pension health system, health insurance uh, payments. But now they organize workers over 20 hours per week. So um, 
And that tends to be the uh, a large majority of all the part-time workers. So what I want to discuss now is sort of some of these initiatives, and I want to look at a few uh, themes that come across all the cases. As I said, the cases are extremely similar in many ways, so there's very little need to say they are doing this and they are doing that, because there is a strong similarity among the initiatives in accordance with the strong role of UA Center. So it, it's probably good to say something about the reasons for organizing. Um, as I said, particularly striking aspect is the close cooperation with management. Um, probably say something about the success of organizing because it's been extremely successful. Um, say something about the advantage to union members and maybe more than anything else, um, what strikes me at least is that there's been a strong union cooperation in developing new inclusive personnel systems that offer new career opportunities to, uh, to, to um, non-regular workers. And this is where it, of course, gets awfully strange from a, from a European perspective because there is really this, this mingling between management and unions in what we, what we in Europe would perceive to be a managerial responsibility. A personnel system is designed by the company. No, there's a strong involvement in, in these particular processes, which I think makes it uh, particularly interesting. Um, I don't have a slide on the reasons for organizing because they're relatively straightforward. Uh, obviously, the numbers are there. Uh, with the majority of workers being non-regular workers, it makes sense to organize them. Um, some unions refer to the need for greater equality, aware that the position of these workers is, is, is very secondary to the position of regular workers and therefore need to be addressed. Uh, others also, are very, um, probably all of them, would also be very honest that there are instrumental reasons. If, if you only organize regular workers, your numbers will go down very, very quickly. So obviously... This is a, an absolute necessity. As I said, probably one of the most interesting aspects is this strong cooperation with uh, management. And it's, as, a, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is an established aspect of, of Japanese unions. But I think the case is particularly interesting because it really illustrates, confirms, and sort of brings to light how, how intensive that kind of cooperation is. Uh, in many ways, you could say, it's not so much a union initiative. Um, one of the union reps uh, said, uh, said it as such, the firm decided to break the wall between regular and non-regular workers. So the firm, in suggesting a new personnel system, which included these workers, actually took the first step and started to treat both of them equally. I think we have to take this with a pinch of salt, but one gets the idea. Because of this changing of the system, we decided to invite non-regular workers to the unions. So, so it is sort of a, a reaction to management policy. Um, there's also this interesting aspect that this, the union shop agreements, so sort of compulsory union membership, um, means that when a union decides to include non-regular workers, they have to renegotiate their agreement with management. So obviously that requires cooperation with management. It's a necessity. Um, also, unionization offers important advantages, not just to the union, but also to the firm. Because if a union has more than 50% membership, it qualifies as a majority union that can speak on behalf of all the workers. And is an important means to keep more potentially more critical voices out. We've already established that U.S. Ensign is, 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 is willing to cooperate with management. Um, there are other unions, and 
um, clearly this is an important means to make sure that those unions find it very hard to, 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 to engage, uh, engage within the organization. It's the, the, as I said, I, I did interviews with both Rengo unions and Zenro Ren unions, and, and you very easily, very uh, quickly find out that if Zenro Ren didn't exist, Rengo should, invite, uh, should invent it. In the sense that the, the, the presence of these more radical unions, even though they might have limited influence in terms of numbers, really is probably the greatest leverage that the more cooperative unions have. You know, um, maybe you should talk to us because they are really difficult. It really is a is a wonderful. I, I, and some some people at UASN uh, acknowledge as much that that is a uh, an important dynamic within within Japan. Um, obviously, the unions also seem to give management access to, to hear what the voice, workers are thinking, can consult the workers on s- certain issues. And in accordance, organization was considered to contribute to the success of the organization. And this is interesting. These are objectives that were given to me by union rep. So they would say something as like unionization leads to an improvement of productivity. Um, I can't hear it being said by a, by a UK union rep or... Um, um, it leads to the development of industrial human resources. Maybe some UK uh, union reps would say something like that now in order to sort of justify their position in a very difficult context. But it's very interesting how the, these aspects uh, are stressed quite regularly and quite easily. Um, as mentioned, huge success. Um, UAS and reps uh, estimated that about 95% of all the employees who qualify become a member. Um, the enterprise unions were a bit vaguer about this, but all of them acknowledged it was at least over uh, 90%. Um, all unions also extended their union shop agreement. There's an interesting aspect here that the union shop agreement only seems to work if the person enters the company. So you cannot introduce a union shop agreement for workers that are already employed. So it means that in the first stage of this, uh, this, this, this process, there has to be actual organizing. People have to be uh, convinced. And obviously, I always try to push them about how do you get those numbers. It's very easy to say, wow, 90%, that's so great. In the UK, we can't even get 20%. How do you do this? And it's very hard to get clear answers, but, but I found a few nice citations which sort of refer to aspects of this. Obviously, I haven't asked the union members themselves. These are union representatives, so obviously um, they are not objective as such, but I think some of these aspects are, are, are rather convincing. Uh, so there was obviously a reference to support by the management. Um, you can join the union. You sort of expect it to. It's not you go against management, you don't have to necessarily, it doesn't have implications for your job security, negative implications. So, so that, that was an important uh, point. Um, somebody also made a reference to workers' disposition to be part of the organization. Uh, employees want to create something together. They want to do something together. What members want to do for members themselves, I'm not sure whether it's grammatically completely correct to sentence, but, but it sort of gives a good feeling of, of what they are trying. Um, another answer referred to what I qualified as some form of group di- dynamics. He said, of course, there is something, a sensibility that makes one think if everybody else is joining, I should join as well, which is true, of course. In life, if, if, if a certain percentage is, is clear, then you have to be very strong not to go. 
with that particular group. So obviously in a country where only 20% becomes a union member, there's no peer pressure whatsoever. But if it gets, if it gets higher, that's obviously um, the case. And I thought maybe most interesting was the, what I qualified as status consideration. Um, this is actually um, a researcher at Rengo who said, if we look at the historical development of the Japanese labor movement, movement workers sought the protection of the union so that status can be guaranteed. There is something in their mentality that by joining the union, their standing of social status will be guaranteed. I think this is particularly important because one, the difference in many ways between regular employment and non-regular employment in Japan is an issue of status. Because with the rise of non-regular employment, these workers tend to do very similar jobs in many ways. So the status has become such an important defining element, much more than the past, where there was probably also a much greater difference in work content. So I think this is a, a very nice uh, quote as such. Yeah, okay. As always, it's always going to be more than an hour, more like an hour than 40 minutes. Um, I'll, I'll try to pick it up a little. What do the union members get out of this? Uh, obviously, the, the holy grail of Japanese unionism, employment security. So, um, if a shop uh, closes down, uh, a worker can get placed in a, in a shop close by. If for some reason that is too, the travel time is too extensive, then there is some kind of um, termination package possible. And interesting enough, you can even be placed in a shop of a different company, but belonging to the same uh, whose union also belongs to U.A. sentence. So there is a lot of uh, issues like that. Uh, another major impact, finally, non-regular employees are truly included in the annual wage negotiation. So wages are not just being set by employers, at least formally. It's no longer the case, but formally there will be a negotiation with, negotiation with the union. Um, I think these are all a little bit more straight. The, the first one, I think, is, is interesting. Uh, a lot of reps refer to the management of so-called human relations. Uh, negative attitudes of managers to the subordinates, uh, sexual power harassments, uh, the ability to ask for your, 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 the paid leave you're entitled to. Uh, so all of these aspects, of course, union can play an important role. Um, the others are relatively straightforward, I would say. What I want to focus on is the last one. As I said, unions had a particularly close involvement in the development of new personnel systems. And these new personnel systems offer new opportunities to these non-regular workers. Um, I'll skip this. Um, unions, especially UA Zensen, was highly supportive of these new personnel systems because they were seen as a, as a necessary step to improve working conditions. So... Uh, specific, 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 specifically. Uh, see, that's what. That's why you shouldn't have a podcast. What we ask for is the establishment of a framework for wages and human resource management for part-time workers. There are still too many part-time workers who are not being treated along clear and objective standards. And there were two subsequent objectives. Uh, first. Uh, we want to put in place a clear system that helps to identify what role and position the employee has within the company. And ultimately, what we are demanding is a system where we can have equal treatment. But this is seen as a necessary step. Let's get a system in place which at least allows us to compare and contrast. Once we get that in place, then we can start discussing uh, how we can achieve greater equality. Um, 
Yes, uh, as I said, I think I'll skip this as well. Um, these are just illustrations how closely involved the unions were in setting up these new systems. So many, many meetings, and I think there's a reference, they stayed overnight to sort of work out a system that was not just a company system, but was also a union system. And this is a, an indication of sort of the outcomes of such negotiations. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I have enough of a professional, what is it, deformation or what is the word, uh, in the sense that I re really appreciate these things. <laughs> I can spend days on, 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 uh, on, on looking at these things. Um, I will keep it short now. What, what is important here that on the left we sort of see a traditional Japanese, or maybe not traditional, but the system as it exists for regular workers. So these days, often with the distinction between workers that can be moved around the entire country and internationally, if relevant, and workers that are more tied to a specific area. So they have less, they are less in danger of being asked to, to uh, leave home and work in a completely different place. Um, those are the two groups of regular workers. What is new is that these companies introduce a, a system for the non-regular workers. Traditionally, these would all be been treated in a similar way. Probably a small seniority element for, but no real um, career trajectories of any sort. And what is interesting in, in, in these, these supermarket cases is that they introduce such a trajectory. As I said, I won't, I won't mention all the details about what it means to be a regular career or leader or uh, what the difference is between the partner course and the expert course, but it is important that these are new possibilities for career development within these uh, supermarkets for non-regular workers. This is a, a similar example for, for the other... Um, one of the other firms. Again, we see on the left the standard uh, regular employees, again, national versus regional. And on the, on the right, we see what they call community uh, employees. And they distinguish two groups. One, they get paid an hourly wage. These are the true sort of old-school part-timers. And those with a monthly salary, which are sort of included much more in the... Um, in, in the uh, hierarchy of the organization. And you can see in the middle that uh, J role is uh, um, straightforward staff, M role is management, S role is senior management. You can see that there is a, a possibility for those in, especially on monthly salary, short-term contracts, to have managerial uh, roles. And this is an indication of that as well. Um, so in the bottom, we see an old-school uh, in many ways an old school part-timer who can move from ability one to ability two to ability three but it's a very limited uh, leeway uh, but the possibility in this organization is indeed that these workers can now become monthly salary community worker, workers and they have to do a test and then they sort of enter in a career trajectory which extends much further to staff levels and managerial uh, levels um, there is a, there's a lot of issues to be discussed here. For example, one question is, uh, what are the implications in terms of wages? It's very hard to assess given the complexity of Japanese wages. You have your, you have your standard pay, your performance pay, your job role pay, etc. You have all your allowances, so it becomes awfully complex. Um, obviously, as long as these workers stay, remain monthly salary, uh, uh, as long as they remain community workers, their pay is substantially less 
than for, for regular workers. But actually, the differences in many ways are maybe not as big as you, as you would have guessed. So it's very, one, this is one of these things where it's very hard to assess whether it's... Um, very hard to assess whether it's a, a positive development, to what extent it's a positive development, and to what extent it's just a continuation of the, the, the segmentation in the Japanese labor market. Um, uh, it's really half, the glass is half full, the glass is half empty, I think, in many ways. Um, okay, assessment. This is, this is the hardest part, so I only have eight minutes to fill. So that's a good thing. Um, what does it mean? As I said, actually, probably the, 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 the remark I just made about is the glass half full or half empty is really something that affects this particular uh, assessment and I think makes it quite hard. I think it's obvious that unions have become more inclusive. Um, they have organized non-regular workers. For many years it was said that was, this was impossible. Um, so that is a real development. And because they now are the majority of the members, it has some impact. Um, Re uh, Representative U.A. Zensen, when we organize part-time workers, numerically we will have three to four times as many part-time members as regular members. Therefore, we cannot go on with our union activities ignoring the voices of part-time workers. I think with a lot of these citations, as, uh, these, these, it, it's as much an appeal, I think, to his, possibly to his fellow uh, union union. Uh, a union representative, or, or as maybe an assessment of reality, but you can see that there is clearly a need to to, to address these issues, and there have been important issues, uh, inclusion in the annual shunto. There are greater career and pay opportunities. Um, I didn't mention it, but there's now the potential to transfer from non-regular employment to regular employment, and and vice versa. And it's interesting that these non-regular workers now seem to have been fully included in the system for both industrial relations and HRM. And thus within the firm, I think in many ways they were ignored in industrial relations. They, did, they were perceived as one group in human resource management, and both these aspects have changed now. And interesting, and, and maybe we can discuss that afterwards as well, actually a lot of the representatives were very positive about the engagement. So apparently, especially a uh, housewife in their 50s who no longer have a responsibility for, for children were very keen to engage in the governance of their local branch office. And an important reason here is that they are not being relocated. So they actually were an important, so that provides an important continuity which, which enables them to, to, to play a role as a, to, to play an active role within the union. So, so quite positive uh, aspect. Um, that being said, um, it's all very nice, but it's also clear that the unions are faced with a very difficult representative challenge. And I think that's why they were so keen on these new personnel systems. Because I think they both, on the one hand, they confirm uh, the this important challenge that unions are facing. On the other hand, they are also perceived as an answer to that particular challenge. So to, to, to start with the beginning, all the union reps would acknowledge the, the huge difference in the character of regular and non-regular employment, which makes it almost difficult, almost impossible to compare, to define equality. That is, 
I think that is the problem with the, the part-time law, as it's been introduced and revised several times, that it, it tries to introduce an equality where everybody perceives the types of employment to be so fundamentally different that it's very hard to define equality and at least very easy to get away by not uh, striving for equality or not implementing equality. So several quotes that acknowledge this um, aspect. Maybe the second one. So wages are different, bonuses are different, retirement pay is different, almost all labor conditions are different. The unions strive for improvement for both groups, but it's not equal. We try to make equal, but we also think that we need some difference between non-regular and regular workers because they do not do the same job. You see that even this union representative is sort of conflicted about what the appropriate strategy is. He's not, even, he's not just giving an excuse, possibly as well giving an excuse why they're not doing more, but you can see that they are really, as I said, maybe conflicted would be the right word. And as I said, this explains why they were always so keen on these new systems, because they sort of form a, 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 provide a framework where you sort of can define equality in cases you cannot define equality. Which would suggest that they, uh, a relatively positive interpretation as a, the new system providing, what I've said here, a workable solution, where equal pay for equal work is somewhat meaningless. And therefore is quite logical as a response. I mean, it's quite a creative solution to the, to the problems that exist. Um, I would say it also, the problem is, of course, it also accepts the situation in the labor market. It accepts the secondary position of non-regular employment. And enterprise unions are not too bothered about this at all. I think they just get things done in many ways. But if you speak to Rango reps and USN representatives, they will acknowledge that there is a problem of dualism. They do acknowledge there's a problem of inequality. But then when you ask them, are you willing to do something about that? Then they say, yes, no, we cannot do this. Also, of course, given the power of the enterprise unions, maybe little point. So... Um, to, to quote this representative, uh, it's not that cut and dry because in the Japanese tax system there are no, some people who don't want to earn more, so it's not that simple to say that higher wages are needed. There are many factors in play here. So there's this such incredibly complex situation that actually stops them from saying, okay, there is an inequality in the labor market and something needs to be done. Um, yes, so what we see at the end of the day is not, an, not a challenge to the dualism in the labor market, but largely a confirmation. And to be honest, one could question to what extent the unions are the main guilty party. But of course, on the one hand, firms decided to increase non-regular employment because they were cheap. So in spite of all the new personnel systems they're going to introduce, they're not going to take away these cost advantages that inspire them to get non-regular workers in the first place. So obviously, there, there's a, a, an important constraint there. And of course, the issue remains that Again, I didn't speak to union members, but the representatives point out that a majority of non-regular workers is sort of um, reasonably content, especially with the newly created situation. It's probably also where you're coming from, and then this is a nice improvement. And the situation remains that a lot of lot, many of these part-time workers are uh, housewives who are not necessarily uh, wanting to engage with a with a with a with a, with a further career, at least not in the context that these careers are constituted in Japan, I suppose. Um, of course, it, it has important risks for the strategy. 
um, how much improvements is possible. And at the end of the day, these unions can be legitimizing a poorer form of employment. Uh, we probably sh should. It's important to point out that these jobs used to be taken by regular workers. Of course, companies decided to change that, and now unions sort of follow these companies and in many ways are legitimizing a sort of second-rate form of, of employment in many ways. Um, I think we can... This is, I have one more minute. Um, this is a, an interesting uh, issue as such. Um, as I said, a group of workers has been included in the union and subsequently in the firm, which had not been included in the same extent before. Um, and I think in many ways that is an important development. Um, in accordance, it actually hasn't changed the character of unionism, but in many ways has confirmed it. So the unions are still enterprise unions. Nothing has changed there. Uh, and actually, um, the unions in many ways have still very cooperative management possibly even more so than ever before. They are setting up systems together. So you see that there's a huge confirmation of, 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 of the character of unionism and subsequently the community firm, except possibly that indeed it has been extended to include non-regular workers. From a hysterical perspective, we could say, yes, but these actually used to be regular workers 20 years ago, so not much has changed at all. So this is one of the questions I have. How meaningful is this development, or is this just... Um, uh, a redefinition of a group of workers through history from regular positions into non-regular positions and the rest stays exactly the same. Um, and there are a few implications here, of course. This, this, this continuity has uh, several implications. Um, it makes sense that we are talking about part-time workers and contract workers because you can integrate them within the firm because they are relatively stable. Um, this cooperative relationship means, of course, that these unions are not going to be too aggressive in questioning the inequality because it is based on cooperation with management. Um, as I said, in accordance with the importance of enterprise unions, there's some questions about whether this can be extended to other industries, to smaller companies. That is an important issue uh, as such as well. Um, in the end, it seems that real change will obviously depend on whether certain groups in society uh, require such further changes. So um, some, some interviewees would, would, would refer to the shortage of part-time employee that is developing. Um, that could possibly inform companies to make a better use of those workers with possibly better career trajectories. Of course, there are the concerns about inequality and working poor, whether governments at some point are going to address some of these issues. Uh, there's the demands of non-regular workers. The argument is that many of the non-regular workers currently are still more or less satisfied with the current setup, but of course that can happen. So I suppose, as always, as a, as a final word, the, what's at stake here is, of course, the the, the privileged position of regular workers, uh, the gendered nature of the Japanese labor market, these issues will have to change in order for, for further developments to, 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 to take place. And I suppose there are no strong indication that this is about to happen in the, in the next few years. But I think what is interesting about this case is that at least one could argue that these unions have introduced a framework for, for handling the dualism in the Japanese labor market and the dualism within the the, 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 the the group of employees within these these retail companies. So that framework might support further developments as such. But we'll see. Okay, thank you.
Okay, can I start off with a question? Sorry to jump in, folks. Um, as you were talking, uh, you kind of reminded me that this, this is part of a post-war history of Japan, in that if you go back to the 1950s, um, or even the late 1940s, the, um, there was a divide between white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, and, and there could have been a process of organizing them in different unions. And the powerful unions of the time pushed